I something told me like this is not normal that I get hit in a training because I'm not going fast enough. Yeah, no, not normal. And but I, you know, the the the, the gist behind that was like, I'm, I, it's to make you tough. Yeah. You know, uh, the tougher you are, if you don't cry when I hit you. When you get to race day, you're gonna be like super strong and you have to get used to it. This episode is brought to you by Le Club Espresso Bar. For over half a decade, Le Club has been at the heart of coffee and cycling communities in Montreal. They're roasting delicious beans to serve Le Club's famous Montreal Espresso Bar and hosting the world's most exciting cycling brands on Le Club store. They even are selling the personalized Rafa cycling kit that Rafa made with me. They are the only one in Montreal selling this kit. Of course, I'm biased, but I think that's pretty cool. So please enjoy Le Club's delicious espresso and filter blends in your own home with direct shipping from leclub.cc. For a limited time, Le Club is offering 40% off your second Le Club coffee bag. Thank you, Le Club Espresso Ball, for presenting this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fever Talk podcast. I'm Magalie and Geneviève Janson. Thank you so much for being here. I am so welcome. It's been a while. I was secretly hoping you would ask me to do your podcast for a long time. So I'm really happy you did. Well, on my side, I was wanting to ask for a long time and I was shy to ask. I didn't know. I know like you've been surrounded by media your whole life. So I was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to ask her and just <laughs> add to add to all of it. So when I finally found the courage, I was really excited when you said that that you wanted to come. So thank you for yeah, being you're welcome. here. Um, for those who don't know, uh, I, I know, I think a lot of people know who Geneviève Janson is, especially in the world of cycling. But I think your story actually transcended the world of cycling. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Geneviève was a professional cyclist. She won some of the biggest races she was world champion um and then in 2005 she was uh banned by the uci for uh failing a drug test uh with epo then in 2007 is 2007 you admitted that you had in fact taken drugs you also confessed that you had uh been victim of abuse uh from your coach abuse sexually, mentally, physically, uh, all of that at the age of 16 years old, mm -hmm. which is which is crazy. Um, and now 10 years later, more than 10 years later, 15 almost. Oh my God, uh, 2007, yeah, like almost 15 years. 15 years, 15 years later, uh, Geneviève is back with, I mean, she's back racing gravel. Yep. We've seen each other at some races. Um, and you've come back to share your story and share a message with, with a new mission, I think. Uh, is that correct? Yes, it's correct. Um, but I did start racing again to take my own power back. Yes. Uh, that was the most important to me. And I, with getting older and, you know, seeing the place that athletes can have to influence people. We have a social platform now, or athletes have a social platform. We have social responsibilities. Uh, you know, we can do a lot of good in the world. And I think we receive so much when we're an athlete. Of course, we work really hard, but it's also our duty to give back. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, it came the, the the giving back part I was thinking for a long time. So I started by doing that, being a mentor with the Cyclist Alliance and uh, and speaking with uh, young professional cyclists, women cyclists, and sharing with them. And I realized that they all have fun in training and they have fun at races and they have fun with their teammates. And it made me realize that I never had fun. It was always like so dry and I couldn't laugh. I couldn't see any friends. I couldn't see any girlfriends before or after the race. Everything was very controlled. And then I said, okay, yeah, I might be 40. You know, I'm not going to have the performances that a 25-year-old is going to get, but I still have the possibility to change my brain chemistry and to take that power back, to take the... My, my former coach robbed the fun out of training and fun of the competition. So the only way that I could do that was to go back mm-hmm. in, in, gravel race, uh, in gravel racing, in racing in general. Mm-hmm. But I, I joke a lot that I, cho- I chose gravel because there's beer after. <laughs> it's not only for that. Yep. Uh, it's mostly also because I want to live an adventure. Yep. I want to go on a long race and, you know, live a bunch of stuff. And then uh, get at the end, or even if you have a bad day, you're not going to be dropped by any, you might be dropped by the front group or, or by the group you're riding with, but there's always going to have people, you can finish your race. Yep. If you get dropped on a crit or you get dropped on a road race, kind it's kind of, of boring. boring. Yep. Exact. Yeah. So for me, it, that gravel was attracting on that side. Cool. And I mean, we'll get back to all of that in a minute. And I want to talk about your racing. I want to talk about so much. But first, there's two things that I want to address. Uh, first thing is, uh, I mentioned that I was, it took me a long time to ask you to come over. And I want to share that with our listeners as well. I was I was nervous. I was nervous because first, as I said, I didn't I I knew that you were asked by so many people to share your story, and I didn't know if if I was the right person. I was also nervous because I'm a professional cyclist, and doping is so not well seen that I was I didn't want to be associated with doping. But I've learned that. It, the person and the thing is not the same thing mm-hmm. and i and i have a lot of respect for what you're doing so that that's one thing that i i i jumped over this hurdle and the other um the other reason i was nervous is that there are hard questions to ask and there are things that i'm wondering uh, but that are not easy to ask um so bear with me people normally i don't have questions but i do have them now so if if i sound nervous that's the reason why but at the same time i want to say that i'm really grateful that you accepted to chat with me and i, I feel very privileged that i i get to have this conversation with you nice. so, thank you it's similar so thank you and and lastly i mean we're both french speakers and mm. we're talking in english and i want to se- tell you why i mean we talked about the message that Geneviève wants to share and she has been sharing that that message a lot in french in the french media and so we thought if we do this in Eng- in english it's a way that we can touch more people exactly as a broader range it's not because we yeah. we don't like speaking french exactly exactly <laughs> so bear with us uh, on that front so let's start this in a in a in a fun way Geneviève if i You know, I think that one, some of the best conversations happen on a bike. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine we're on a bike. I join you. I join you at home. We, you take me on a spin in your hometown. Where do we go? What's our ride with Genevieve? Like, what kind of bikes? Where do we stop for? Lo- what? What is it? Are we going fast, slow? 
Take me on a ride with you. It would probably be, well, I live in Saint-Lazare now, which is almost in Ontario, so west of the island, Montreal. And it's a great little community. It's very easy to uh, to start from the house. The only thing we're really missing where I live, it's long hills or big hills or, you know, good Vallon, like we say in French. We miss a little bit of that, but the roads are exceptional. And in Ontario, the asphalt is great. <laughs> Compared to <laughs> Quebec, là, that's like uh, very bad. But anyway, so we would leave from my house and we would probably go. My favorite loop is about between, if we make it short, between 160 kilometers, so 100 miles, all the way up, we can do a 200. Wow, that's a big one. So it's a big one. And we go towards Alexandria okay. in Ontario. And it's all like super nice farm roads. You can easily imagine that you're under, in another country. Huh. And then the stops are not great. We're, we're missing a little bit of coffee shops where I live, but they have good gas stations and, you know, you have everything. Sometimes they even have cliff bars that I don't have at my <laughs> store. So that's very exciting. But, uh, yeah, we would probably leave for a good six to seven and a half hours. Yep. The pace would be, let's say, now, now that it's, popular or it's a lot in the in the news and we we talk about it a lot zone two yep so you know you can still talk but yep. you're working yeah um so that would be it yeah i mean that sounds good if you, we go such a long loop you can't go that easy otherwise no, it never finishes exact and your butt hurts and yeah yeah okay cool uh i mean let's do it Okay. Let's do it this summer. I think that would be fun. And I don't know at all this area of riding. You know, I, I'm more in a Laurentian. So yes. I ride like that. That's kind of where I ride, I ride when I'm home. Um, but I mean, I'm going to do some gravel too this summer. So long rides. I need that. So let's. Uh, I need some technique from you. Uh, I know we talked about it earlier yeah. last year, but uh, oh boy, I'm rusty with technique. So I'll go ride gravel with you in your area. As well. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> let's, let's make it. Let's yeah. make it up. And then. Um, All right. I mean, this actually brings me to the question, what is your relationship with the bike now? And I know, I mean, you mentioned in at the beginning of this conversation that the fun had been taken away from you for years when you were actually racing. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship with cycling now and how has it evolved over the years? It's a really good question. And I'm still, I think, confused Um, the bike on one side is the place where I feel the most like myself. Mm -hmm. I feel I can be a hundred percent authentic and vulnerable and I, f it's me, it's part of me. Um, I don't think I would be the same person without the bike. And actually I didn't ride for many years mm -hmm. from a good seven years, no bike. And then kind of cheapy bike, le, maybe 500 kilometers a year for many years. Um, My relationship with it is way healthier than it was before. But I still have a lot of fear, hmm. especially when it's a training that's structured and I'm going to do the higher zones. Yep. Because in my past, my intervals, well, we didn't have power meters back then. So I was working with heart rate, which I still do now. So going back to training, I, thankfully, I have a coach, but I'm learning all about watts and everything. Uh, but anyway, that's the technical part of stuff. But my intervals were so hard. And for some reason, my coach never thought they would be they were good enough. 
So it was always associated with fear of what's going to happen if I don't do well. Sometimes, let's say we would have one hill and I would have 20 repeats to do. So you go up, you go down on different gears, uh, uh, seated, standing, everything, and you would time them. And my last five, let's say I started at 50 seconds and I was already going like 95%, 50 seconds. Well, my last five, they had to be close to 40 seconds. And if my last fives were not, let's say, between 42 and 40, I would do it again and again and again. So sometimes, I mean, I would spend hours and then I would cry and I would throw my bike on the side. I would get, I would get hit. Uh, so it was always that fear in the morning that you know on your program you have intervals, but you didn't know what's going to happen. Because sometimes I would have really great training days and I would hit all my targets in time for the segment and everything, but it was not good enough. Mm. And I would still get beat. Wow. So at some point you get so confused, like, okay, I did everything right, but I get either physically hurt or mentally or emotionally hurt. And sometimes I'm going to do one thing bad and it's going to be the same consequence. So it's all, it's like... Everything is related. So sometimes, you know, I get my program uh, a week or 10 days in advance and I know everything and I look over all my trainings and I'm excited. But when I get to that, like tomorrow, for example, I have yeah. one and I already have the butterflies yeah. and I have to remind myself consciously like Jen, no one is there to beat you. Yeah. You know, nothing is going to happen, even if you don't do any of the zones that you were prescribed, if you have a shit day, you're going to be fine. You're yeah. safe. So I I have that still. Yeah, uh, that's it's so hard to I mean, when you say the word safe, like it's so hard to hear that. It's so unfortunate to hear that. That person used training as a punishment, like as, as a punishment. I yeah. don't know if you said can say that punishment, punishment. Thanks. Yeah. Like that's so wrong, you know, and it, it's it's really hard. Um, I mean, if it makes you feel better, I get the butterflies sometimes too. But I, I think it's intervals. important. I think yeah. it's important, but I think I realized over the years that when I do the best is when I don't associate my self worth with the results I'm going to get in mm -hmm. the intervals. And I mean, to that point, what we've done in my with my coach is that in, initially, like for years, I had like you know, zones or actual watts power that I had to achieve on the intervals. And he took that away because I would sometimes like, I never had pressure from anyone else outside, but on me, you know, yeah. if I could not achieve the power that I wanted to, I would get hard on myself. And then I would start either panicking in a training or whatever. And then it would not be a good training. Now it's just like, we go with effort. And mm -hmm. so I kind of know in my head what I want to do, but if like, if it's one day that I don't feel good and I'm 15 watts under, I still do the full training by doing my best and I still finish by being happy and yes. proud. And, and what I noticed over the years that that's how I do the best because other on, on the other opposite, like if I'm feeling good, then I don't have a limit. I can go even higher yes. and then be even more proud. And so it's so, so hard to hear that I'm, I'm, I, I just wanted to share this with you because to, to for you to know that I also have the butterfly. I think there's a good way, but it must be so hard to like relearn that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it translates also on race day. Huh. 
I was, I always had to win. And sometimes I would win by like eight minutes, but I didn't attack at the right place and there would be a consequence. You know, it was so stupid, but it, even today, I mean, since that fear is not there anymore, I don't really know how to race because I don't know where I'm going to find that aggression because before it was motivated by fear. And if I don't win, what's going to happen? You know, I, I was afraid of dying and all that stuff and, and the, the beatings I would get. But now it's not there anymore. So sometimes I show up on, on the starting line and I'm like, when it gets hard, yes, I push through. But I don't have that extra, okay, um, that extra grit <laughs> because that fear, even if I feel it sometimes in trainings and stuff, it's not there, so I'm kind of in between. I have to learn how to reconnect and why I want to do good. Why for me? What's in my heart? Why do I want to do good? So uh, it's been a very interesting uh, mm -hmm. first season um, yeah. racing. Uh, it's so interesting that you talked about that, the fear, because, for example, if, I, uh, if I'm emotionally unwell, you know, if I'm sad for something that happened in my life, I struggle pushing hard in training. Mm -hmm. It's just not there physically, you know, because it takes a lot of willpower. And if I'm too sad, I just can't push through. And I was wondering, how did you do it all these years? And I now I understand yeah. it's the fear it that was, was fear. overpowering mm -hmm. all of that. It's like I wanted to be the best when I was younger. And then that, my own motivation and my own capacity to suffer and to take the hits, you know, not actual hits, but the competition hits, mm -hmm. like the attacks and stuff, paired with the coach saying, if you don't win, you know, I'm going to beat your ass. Those are the two that made me like the machine I was. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you take that survival instinct away... I, I totally understand when you say you know, when you're sad, nothing works mm -hmm. because I'm the same. And I think that's how we, we, we should be as human beings, yes. you know, yeah. we're, we're emotional beings. And yes, we have a head and a conscience and we can manage both. But if you want to be at your best on race day, especially at the level you're, you're at now, I mean, everything needs to be almost perfect. Mm -hmm. See? So, yeah. Right. And so you, You shared some stories that from the harder moments um, from that period, what is or before that period started, what is the last good memory that you have on a bike before everything turned sideways? Do you still have one? Um, I think it was my first year cadet. So midget, I think they say in English. So that's You're like about 15. Okay. Um, and I, I won, uh, the, the Quebec championships and, you know, they had the Coupe Quebec, so different mm -hmm. events to, to, throughout the year, the season. And that's when at the end of that season, I would have been cadet second year, mm -hmm. but I decided to go up, uh, junior. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the Quebec Federation had said, okay, no problem, but we're going to give you a trial. We're going to give you, I think, five races. And if we see that we can stick, you can stick with the junior women and that you're not being, you know, super beat up, uh, you can stay in the juniors. But if we see that you're not there yet, we're going to pull you back into the cadet because it's not going to be good for your development, you know? Yeah. 
So, um, my, my last good memories were from that cadet one year. Mm -hmm. Because after that, I sat down with my coach and I said, okay, next year, you know, I want to get uh, bumped one grade and I want to race in the juniors and I really want to do well and stuff. And, and we talked and he said, Aria, are you sure? And I said, yes, because he said it's going to be a lot of dedication and it's going to be super hard. So since I'm born at the end of summer, I was like in in the in the younger, I would say, of the of my category. So it's it's really at 15 when I was my first year junior that everything changed. changed. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I yeah, when everything happened was then. So after that, everything was a bit tainted yeah. with that. But I still had the dream. I still wanted to go to the world championships and and win. So for the longest time, I just I just thought. Okay, so just don't think about it. You deal with the consequences later. But for now, I mean, you have to keep stay focused on your goal. Um, yeah, no. if we go back to that moment, like, where everything changed, really. And I, I kind of hate asking this question because I'm sure you've asked yourself a thousand times, like, what, what could have been, mm -hmm. you know? And the reason I'm asking is, like, was there a key moment that, What's that key moment where everything changed? Like maybe you arrived to a fork on the road that you took this path and you could have taken the other path. Like what could have been and what was that moment? And I guess could have it been different? And if so, like what are the, were you lacking resources? What, you know, do you yeah. understand what I'm yep. asking? So, um, well, to put everything in context, the first time I got hit, I was 14. And it was in that winter where I would get, you a know, bumped up category. Bumped up category. Okay. Um, and no, I, yeah, sorry, I was 15. And then I something told me like this is not normal that I get hit in a training because I'm not going fast enough. Yeah, no, not normal. And but I, you know, the the the, the gist behind that was like, I'm, I, it's to make you tough. Yeah. You know, uh, the tougher you are, if you don't cry when I hit you, when you get to race day, you're going to be like super strong and you have to get used to it. So yeah. I was like, okay, it's possible. But then when the sexual abuse started and he told me like he was in love with me and if I would leave, he would commit suicide and or if I left him, he would kill me. He would find me, kill me and then kill himself. This is where I should have said No, because I was not doping at that time. Yeah, I was winning, you know, clean. And I won my first uh, junior Canadian championship in that year that I was bumped. Uh, yeah. I was uh, one year er uh, earlier than all the other girls. I still won the time trial and the road race. I was not doping then. But the abuse had already started. Mm -hmm. So that's the moment where I should have said, this is nuts I mean this is crazy and I knew inside but at the same time I mean I didn't want to live with the suicide of someone in my shoulders mm -hmm. and I kept going out of fear of one dying and two him committing suicide yeah So then it went on and on and on and on. Then the next year after that, the 1998 season. So I'm going to be 17 at the end of the summer. I'm 16. I'm anemic. But 
Mr. left his job. He doesn't have any salary anymore to take care of me. I'm supposed to win and get sponsors and I'm supposed to, you know, win all season and everything. So now I'm, I'm at my first real junior year. I've never been to the world championships. Uh, it's my first year I'm going to go. But now I'm anemic. He doesn't make any money. And he said, well, you can't do that. You can't, you can't take a season off or not performing because I have bills to pay. So we're going to go see a doctor. We're going to give you something just, you know, just to get you healthy again. And at 16, I mean, especially with what was happening in my life and the, the constant abuse, I was like, uh, okay, it's it. there's nothing I can do because I don't want, again, I don't want him to commit suicide. So we went to the doctor And I got TPO prescribed. And of course, it was not for a few times, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. then that was started. Okay. So, you know, so yeah. the fork in the road, it's an excellent question. It's when the sexual abuse started. Do you... How could have it been different? So I'm thinking like if... Let's say if someone is in that situation, what resources would you have needed to t make that other decision? Because, I mean, I, I can't even imagine, like, how it must have been to be in that situation. Yeah. It, but, like, yeah, what are the resources that you would have needed at that point? It's the education. And it's what I'm, what we're working on the most, I think, right now in safe sport is to educate. Yeah. Because there was no resources. There was no resources for athletes or for my parents or for, you know, teammates or team managers or president of clubs. Nothing was there. And it was kind of accepted. You know, abuse was accepted in sport because that's the old way it, it was done. Tough. Uh, yeah, it makes you tough. Yeah. So I think, let's say, at 14 uh, or 15 uh, or even a little uh, older, if I would have had, let's say, a training session or a, even a webinar on these are the, the attitude, not, the, uh, not an attitude, but the signs or if you see a coach or a teammate or, you know, there's a lot of bullying now, I would have needed to know what it was like and yeah. that it's not normal. But I didn't have any reference point. Yeah. And at the same time, we lived in Arizona I was away from my parents. My parents didn't see anything. I couldn't speak with teammates or other girls. He's so just isolated. Exactly. I was yeah. living in a closed box and I just thought everything was normal. And the worst is that I was winning. Yeah. So let's say no one, because after I, I, uh, I asked a lot of questions and I interviewed uh, a lot of my friends and, and people that were in my entourage back then, and they all said, we knew something was wrong. We could see it. But we didn't want to be the one causing you to stop winning. Mm -hmm. We couldn't deal with that. So no. we just said, okay, she's winning. She, you know, she must be happy. But we, we cannot equa equate uh, winning and, and immediately happiness. being happiness. No, see? And now yeah. we see it more and more. So I would have loved something like Sportide. You can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And even, even if... You know, you don't know how to say it. They can, they're going to listen to you. They're going to guide you. They're going to they're gonna put you in contact with a specialist. It would have changed, been, changed a lot of things. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's what's important to keep 
improving yeah. in our society. And then I want to get back to winning, but first, like you talked about that first time that you were given EPO. Are you comfortable taking us into that moment? Like I just have so much empathy because being 16 in a position where you're faced with this and in a way it's a choice but it's not because you're there's so much fear and so mm -hmm. much threats coming your way that like if those threats are coming your way suddenly it steals the freedom of making a choice because it's you do this or there are so much consequences that will have i mean could i mean could have you dead you know mm -hmm. so it's like your values are I can't even imagine, but even I'm trying to put myself in your shoes at that moment at 16 with that fear. I feel like the values that you have, like they're kicked out of the window because suddenly it's like I have to save myself. Like it's in survival instinct. Yep. Can you take us in that moment where like you did take drugs for the first time? How was it? Did you, I don't even know. Like, is it injection? Do you do it yourself? How were you feeling in that moment it's um i knew it was i knew it was bad uh but it was there was no test at the time for mm -hmm. it uh, i definitely knew it was bad and that i was entering a whole other area of life and sport and responsibility that i did not know how to deal with i knew all that But at the same time, like you just said, I didn't have a choice, mm -hmm. uh, especially because now I had the financial responsibility of someone else, a grown man, mm -hmm. and I was supposed to, you know, put money on the table for both of us to live, especially him, because me at 16, you know, I was still with my parents and everything. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, You know, you have a doctor. The doctor says that oh, it's not going to be too bad and it's not dangerous for your health. And, you know, everybody does it. That's the thing. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but they do fucking use that term. Oh, everybody does it, yeah. you know. Um, Did it make you feel like it's necessary? No, exactly. That's necessary. It's uh, no, it's it's not a good feeling, but. I didn't have any values anymore either. I didn't. I, I had no reference point I just wanted to stay out of trouble mm -hmm. and it's kind of stupid to say now but to stay out of trouble at this point in my life was not not getting beaten yeah and staying healthy and happy and trying to move on you know in my life and stuff and not having someone dying or being killed um, but after that I mean I hated taking that I fucking hated it. You inject it. It's under your skin. You can do it yourself. Uh, someone else can do it. Um, for many years, and especially at the end of my career, and I'm, I'm going to get to that in a, in a, in a few, but I, I didn't want to take it. There's many times that I threw it in the, in the sink instead of injecting it. Uh, and you, you kind of get paranoid because you have to carry that with you. You have sometimes to, you know, you have other people staying in your house. You have the doping controls. So I was at a point where I was so paranoid that if there was, I had studied all the cars in my street. And if there was oh. one car that I didn't know, I would not go home because it could have been anti-doping, you know, anti-doping. 
and your life just start. I mean, it becomes this narrow path that you can't do anything and you're you're consumed. And I, I imagine that it could be the same thing for, for real addicts. Hmm. Like, you know, heroin addicts and stuff that the only thing you think about all day, every day is how you're going to get that drug. For me, it was not that problem, but you think about that all the time. It takes everything. It takes over, it takes over it, your you life. Know, it takes over your life. But, you know, it's funny because I think about that now at 41 years old. I was anorexic in my career because it's the only thing I could control is what was going on in my mouth. And I did not eat anything. I weighed 103 pounds and now healthy. And like my racing weight is about 115. So and off season, like right now, maybe 119. And it seems to be like the place where my body wants to be, yeah. you know, slimmer than that. It's hard. And I have to cut a lot of stuff and it takes a lot of dedication. But, you know, between 115 and 119, perfect. I was 102, 103, 104. I never learned how to fuel properly during training. I never had like I didn't eat anything. I didn't have energy drinks and stuff. I was constantly afraid of, of getting fat Um, but I could keep going because of the EPO, I guess. Yeah. And say it's yeah, just, yeah. It, it fucks you up in more ways than one. And now, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be sick when I'm older. Yeah. You know, I oh, took that for many thing. years. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about that and, I, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I know it's, it was not supposed to be uh, dangerous for the human body and stuff, but no one knows. No one It knows. Was, You know, there was no studies, especially not on healthy human beings. Yeah. So it's just it's crazy. bad. And I mean, I, I feel like I have to ask, like, did it feel? Do you did you feel much better? You feel nothing different. You, you just you different. can train. Of course, you can train a bit more because you're recovering faster. Yeah, that's the main difference. Uh, see, but you have to be mentally ready to take that training. Yes, yes, that's the thing. Like <laughs> See, that, that doesn't get easier. It, no, because after a super hard day on the bike, I mean, you're mentally exhausted. Maybe physically, and I, I've never taken anything else than EPO. I never did steroids and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But I've heard from other people uh, that took steroids, like they would get crazy in the gym. And then the next day, their body would be ready for it. But their mind, they were tired. You know, mm -hmm. you need a break. So, but no, I didn't feel okay. any stronger. Uh, you go faster, but you suffer the same. It's, but then at the same time, you know, since I, I was not eating enough, it's like, okay. it's, all, it's a big mess, big see, but fuck, I regret that. But I don't regret it because it made me who I am, but mm -hmm. I'll never know what kind of athlete I could have been. I wanted you to know? ask you about that because at Big Red, when, when we talked, I think what, that was the first time we actually met and... Yeah. That's one of the things you shared with me. You said one of the hardest thing is I'll never know what how good I could have been. Mm. And I, I went back home after you told me that and I was like, this is horrible because it's the whole point, isn't it? Like it's a whole point of doing that for me anyway. It's like what I enjoy is how good can I be? And then I get a result and I'm like, okay, now what can I tweak to see if I can get better? And that's like what keeps me going. That's mm -hmm. like the pursuit that I enjoy. And, and like, yes, I want to win, but the winning is not necessarily the end point. The end point. And like, that's the question I wanted to ask you about winning is like, do you think 
we put too much pressure on young athletes, like too much importance on winning and on performance. And like, if that, like, did that play a part in all of this? And yeah, I don't know. Yes, I think the culture we have right now of winning at all costs is the root of all everything of else. Everything. Uh, it's the root of doping. It's the root of a lot. I don't want to say everything, but a lot of the mental health issues mm -hmm. of the anxiety of the pressures. And I've been working on it for many years with my psychologist. And he told me one thing that I always remember now. And he's like, Jen, remember when you were in school? When you get 80 on a test, 80 is really good. Mm -hmm. You don't need to have 99 or 99.5 to get a job. You know, 80 to 100, I mean, it's wide and everything is good there. So... You know, you have to see your life like this. It's better if you're 80% in everything as an athlete, as a wife, as a friend, as a, you know, a person that does a job, mm -hmm. then you're 100% in one thing. And when it, it, you can't you can't really apply that all the time because you at some point if you want to be the best in one thing, you have to be more than 80%, là. But you can translate that to the, the, the culture of winning we have. It's not true that it's only one, two, and three that are good. Mm -hmm. The podium could be 20 places deep and it would be really good. You know, we have to see sport as a not just gold, silver, and bronze or yeah. not just the top five. Yeah. There's... There's many other things that are good in sport and there's athletes that are excellent that are going to finish 50th. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And I mean, you've, for example, like you've won the world championships. That's like a dream of mine, for example, you know, and, and to put it on in a, in perspective for people, like that's the epitome of the sport, like, like wearing the rainbow jersey and you've crossed that finish line winning Do you feel like you've won or how did you feel at that point? I did feel like I won, yeah. yes. Um, because I I still feel that I did all the efforts and all the discipline and everything. Yeah. Um, I didn't win by much, not, not that it matters, but yeah, I still, I still feel that I won. Yeah, that's, and that's cool. And I think it goes back to, or it's in the same packet as... To me, doping or getting caught and having my name trash in the media was an easier send. I mean, I wanted to get rid of my coach so bad that I was prepared to fail a drug test. I didn't I didn't do it on purpose, okay, failing mm -hmm. a drug test, but it's the best thing that happened to me because it saved me from him. Mm -hmm. It was the first time where I said, okay, I can, there's, I'm not gonna race anymore, so I don't need him in my life. Um, so I'd, I would have rather, no, that's not what I mean. It's, it's tough to explain. Um, The abuse I was living was more difficult than failing a drug test. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So, yeah. say it's 
to me, failing a drug test and all that stuff was like, okay, no matter, I'm happy, fine. Uh, it's like, um, Maybe it's, it's your exit. Like, yeah, it's yeah. my exit and it, it's not as important as, as what I'm living now with, with that horrible life, yeah. you know? So maybe, uh, yeah, it's, it's like all my experiences are, are in that, that box, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So that, is that like what you mean when you say like, I, I'll never know how good I, I could have, like you, you kind of, it's so hard because like, you still feel like you won and I get it because you still put all the work. Exactly. And so I, I understand that, but you still don't know like how. Just see. Yeah. So I that's, know, it's that's, hard. that's the tough thing. Mm -mm. Yeah. I understand. Um, okay. I mean, if we go back to, I, I guess last thing, because yeah, for example, there is a, there's a girl in cyclocross that was caught two years ago and She, um, I mean, I guess where I'm going with that question and I'll explain the situation is, do you think it would help if the, the, the consequences were harder than just a ban? Do you think it would help young people to not, I mean, in, the, in your case, it wasn't even a decision, but it, it, do you think it would help if the consequences were harder? And the reason I'm asking is, for example, that woman who, who was caught, She, for example, in that season, she probably made around $100,000 uh, in prize money. Mm -hmm. And I calculated for fun. Like, she was often just before me. <laughs> she was often beating me. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of, at the end of season, about $10,000 that I lost to her. Do you think if, uh, as part of the ban, people had to reimburse their prize money? I believe there was probably not that much prize money in your time. But do you think that would make it worse and make it make people and their coaches question more uh taking the plunge it's a it's a good point um i think that and i'm i'm gonna go a, a different way here but i think if we really want to eliminate doping we should be I don't want to say easier on the consequences. Okay, a ban should be there. If they have to give back prize money, that could be also present and stuff. But we should have a way where an athlete would feel we need more compassion yeah. towards yeah. the people that use performance-enhancing drugs. Because... And yes, of course, you know, I people could say, oh, well, she did, so she's trying to be nice and blah, blah, blah. But in my case, I didn't have the choice. I, yeah. was, I was really forced by outside circumstances. It's, it's not only happening to me. Mm -hmm. So I think to eliminate doping, we should have a structure where the athlete could feel safe and come forward and say... I've been, use, I've been using performance-enhancing drug for three years now. I want to get out of it. Yeah. And I need help. Yeah. But right now, an athlete that's making X amount of thousand dollars a year will never come forward. So that bubble will never be dismantled hmm. because the athlete's going to be punished so bad Some athletes have a wife or a husband, they have kids, they have houses, they have, they don't have anything else. I mean, they don't have any education and stuff, so they will never come forward 
because the risk for their person and for their life is too great. So let's say we take that same athlete, comes forward, and let's say uh, bon, the organization says, okay, you're going to be banned, of course. You're going to have maybe to give back the money. However, you're going to keep a salary. We're going to employ you in our anti-doping agency. You're going to do outreach. You're going to do education. Uh, you hmm. know, you're going to serve your band for X amount of years, but you're not on the streets, okay? We're going to yep. keep you alive. We're going to give you something to do. And then, let's say in four years... When your band ends, if you want to go back to your sport, we'll help you do that too. Yeah. But of course, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have to be on a testing program that's super rigorous. You're going to have this and this and this and this. We should have a system that the athletes can come forward and be able to say everything with the consequences, but not a death sentence. Yes. And we could find so many other things. Yep. You know, because I do believe... And dismantle the whole system, exactly. as you said. Yeah. Because I believe that doping is always going to be there. Yeah. Um, it's always going to be a few steps uh, forward or in advance than the testing and everything. And that could be that could be a great way to, uh, to get a cleaner sport. Mm -hmm. So I'm... I'm tending to go on the opposite side there, yeah. not to be like lenient and be no, okay, no. no problem, but, you know, to have that more compassionate approach. Yeah, I mean, that's why I asked you, you know, because I, you're in a good position to answer that. And I, I, I really appreciate you sharing this. Because I think that it's really rare. It happens, of course, but it's really rare that an athlete's gonna wake up one morning and say, well, this morning I'm going to start a doping program and we're going to go from, you know, <laughs> no. we, we, and, <laughs> no, and, so, so. and sorry if I say that, but we all, we all have a tendency to equate doping with the Lance Armstrong model a bit. Mm -hmm. Like there was a pusher and everything was calculated for winning and blah, blah, blah. It's rarely like that, I think. Hmm. So, yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing it. And I mean, actually, like you talked about, coming forward and then like you're in the street like can you talk about when you came forward like first like why did you decide to to admit what had happened um i read in the in the book i read like that alain gravel the, the, the journalist when he asked you why did you come forward i think in the book it says you said you were my last chance but Can you explain why you decided to admit? And then, like, once it's 2007, like, you've admitted in the documentary, then what? Like, what? where were you then? What are your resources? Who can you talk to? How can you find a job? What happened then? It, yeah. Um, I decided to come forward because I couldn't live with a lie anymore. And... Throughout my, I was 25 when I came forward. Throughout my whole adult life, the decisions were taken for me. You know, of course, I could choose what I wore in the morning. It was not that regimented. But all the big the decisions were made by him. Mm -hmm. And I just had to follow along, follow along. And I realized that now I was an adult and the first de decision I decided to take for myself was to come forward because I wow. wanted to start with a clean life, a life of authenticity and truth. And also because I figured I didn't know if I would have kids back then. Uh, it was a possibility. And 
I imagine being a mom of teenagers or, you know, young kids and stuff. And I knew my name would be in the internet world forever mm-hmm. with everything that's attached to that. And I would rather that my kids say, yeah, my mom, she did drugs and she admitted it. And now she has a life and, yeah. you know, she made it was I don't want to see a mistake because I still don't think that I made the mistake. It mm-hmm. was just the situation I was in. Um, but yeah, that happened in her life and now she's there. I, I said, that's the way I want to raise my kids instead of, oh, my mom was always accused of doping and she never did it and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. That was not the, the way I wanted. So when I came forward, what saved me was that I was in the United States hmm. and I got, uh, I had a big depression. I did nothing for two years. Uh, I really had to, you know, find who I was. I didn't have any tools. I had like high school diploma um, in the United States. I bought a restaurant there. So I worked in, in my restaurant for a year or a year and a half and then I sold it. Um, but I could really fall on my face and do a bunch of mistakes in the United States Without no one knowing. And, you know, I could get a job there uh, and people didn't know my story in Quebec. If I would have been in Quebec, forget about it. But I think I would have taken the same decision just to start fresh. It was super important to me. And I had started therapy at that time. And just the realization that everything that happened was not me. Yeah. It, it was, again, the environment and, and the decisions the, adlo- the adults took and that path I took, that was a big revelation. And I was like, okay, I need to do something for myself. Yep. So it was really hard for about two years. Um, I didn't do anything. I didn't know who I was, how to take care of myself. Uh, I, and I had a tendency because my life was always a crisis. I always had something to fight for. Mm. I was so used to that, that even if that drama was not there in my life anymore, I would get myself in crazy situations like with friends or people or events and stuff. Almost like I craved that drama to, to feel alive, you Hmm. know? And uh, yeah, I had to work through that, and but it was really hard. And then I decided to come back in 2012. Yeah. So I was 30 years old. I came back to Montreal to be with my parents, my family, and to get that cleaned up too. And I went back to Cégep. Wow. I did my Cégep at 30. Uh, then went to university. And after that, you know, with the, the therapy uh, and everything, it's like the, the Tetris game all the blocks were falling into place, mm-hmm. but it took a lot of work. And I'm, I'm like I, I often say, I'm always going to have scars. Yes, I'm healed, but the scars are there. And sometimes they act up. Yeah. So today I, I don't think I'll, I don't want to say I'll ever be normal because there's no such thing as being normal, but it's always something. And especially with my relationship with my loved ones that I have to be very forward because it's not fair for them if something is happening or something has been triggered and now I'm acting up like all crazy. It's not fair for the other person. The other person needs to know. So my communication needs to be like super authentic and I'm struggling with that sometimes. Okay. Well, I want to say that I have so much admiration and respect for the the person you've you are now, you know, and like the recovery process you went through. And I think this is part of the 
hopeful message, you know, that yes. when everything goes, I mean, it must have been such a hard place to be and you managed to slowly make your way out of it. Um, on top of all the other messages that you're sharing, I think this this is an important one too, mm -hmm. that it's possible to, to get better. But I think that's... Uh, when I started to, or when I decided to share my sexual abuse, which I never thought I would, I thought I would die with that, that secret. It's only like my partner that knows it because he has to know. Uh, and, uh, and a few like super close friends, I thought I would die with that. But now when I saw more and more cases coming forward and a bunch of different sports and stuff, And I told myself, well, I'm I'm well enough now that I can live like a super good life. Mm -hmm. And if I can share by sharing what happened to me and sharing also that I'm well and that you can have a wonderful life, that's worth it. I can, I can, I don't want to say save lives, but if I can give hope to someone that went through maybe not the same thing, Trauma doesn't need to be always like super, super extreme to affect us. You mm -hmm. know, there's no such thing as relative trauma. But if I can show that, yes, there's a way, it's not easy. Uh, it takes a lot of work, a lot of courage. You have a lot of step backs, but it's it's possible. Uh, that was important for me. Yeah. And now, I mean, it looks like you have a, a new purpose too, like sharing that, as you said. And one of the things that it, I, I, am I correct that their first step towards that was the use this, the open letter that you sent to the UCI a few years ago. I heard about what pushed you to send that letter. Uh, I think it was some person, uh, a team manager in Belgium that had been accused. It's sexual harassment. For yep. sexual harassment. And it's interesting because that person I've met before I was renting a car from his team once and a f long time ago, maybe five or six years ago. And when I got in the car, I opened like a compartment and there was a box full of pills and syringes. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Mm. And he just took it and like put it away. And then a couple of years later, this happened. He's been accused and I don't know if you've heard. And I'm, so it's, it's when you heard this story that he had been accused that you thought, oh my God, it's still happening. I need to do something. Yeah. And this and the fact that the consequences for sexual harassment and sexual abuse or all that is way, I mean, it was not handled properly. It was way too long. I mean, a retroactive sentence, come on. Uh, I was, I was just uh, baffled by how unimportant it seemed to be yep. to the authorities. And yes, I mean, yes, doping is a is a is a really bad offense. I don't the bad is not the word, but it's serious offense. But, but don't abuse. tell me that sexual abuse is not at least the same. It's worse. In my mind, In my it's, mind worse, it's worse. But you know, I let's say we put it, we put them equal. Yeah. Well, the the sentences for sexual abuse and harassment are like. Almost none compared to doping. And wow. it took 11 women to speak against him. Why not one? Why not one woman or man? Just one voice. It, it doesn't seem like it's ever enough to make a difference or to be taken seriously. You're right. And I, when you think about it, like that one voice takes so much courage to come out. 
it should have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. And we need also to have like the system behind that to do a fast and efficient uh, inquiry or une enquête investigation mm -hmm. just to make sure. I mean, the claims need to be true. Yes, okay. Of you don't want like a vengeance or jealousy and stuff like that. It happens. Okay. We're all humans and mm -hmm. stuff. But so it needs to be easy to complain. It needs to be safe to do so. We need to be taken seriously. And then that process for that investigation, it needs to be quick. Mm -hmm. and thorough and you know to, to get to get things squared off in doping law it takes yeah you know a few months and everything is settled and sometimes a bit more but they're fast and yes you can say okay it's science and we see it in the test and blah 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 but we're talking about here uh, human beings and that can be affected for uh, you know Your their whole, whole life, life so so is that the main message that that you want to share now is that like that was the what what you shared with the UCI is that the main message that you want to sh put we, out there we definitely need to do more work on that yeah and uh, I now I mean the ball is rolling but it's not enough yet and I mean I'm gonna speak for myself that's my own opinion because I am not living in those uh, agencies or or federations but I feel like sometimes it's just there to be there. Mm -hmm. See, so the the groundwork and the education, the education and the the sensibilization programs need to be need to go up a few notches too. Yeah, say it needs to to take some speed and. But uh, yeah, we're I guess we're working on that, and it's yeah. definitely part of my message. And you've talked about education a lot too. Like I think education to young athletes knowing like what could be the red flags what are the resources you can go mm -hmm. but i think i've heard you talk to about resources uh education to staff members like whether it's a team manager whether it's a coach all of that like their education but also like maybe filter that like not everyone can become a coach of young girls or young not just girls young athletes i yep. don't know yeah definitely um and we have a tendency to always look away. Yes. Like people, they're going to see something, they know it's there, but they're they like... They don't say anything. They don't say anything. And that's good for, I mean, yes, for situations of, of abuse or safe sport, but it's also good for, for good for doping. Yeah. Say it's like, oh, okay, they do that. That's their own thing and bye-bye. See, so it's... Um, you know what? About that, like when that woman that was caught a few years ago, um, I was appalled. Um, I was appalled because she only got six months uh, mm -hmm. ban. And I said something on the media and stuff just because I'm like, what does what kind of message does that send, you know? And, and now, like, you know, you're talking to me, maybe whatever. But what was interesting about that is that a lot of other athletes that I race with wrote to me and said, thank you for saying something we don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. speaking up. And I was like, so as you said, like we don't, we have a tendency to look away and not say anything, yeah, whether it's, it's a, about doping or abuse or whatever we see around us. It's a culture that uh, it's, it's a nomerta. Yeah. There's, you know, it's closed and, but it, it would be good if we can change that at some point. Yeah. Have the people feel, but for that, There, there needs to be organizations. Mm -hmm. So if a person has a, a doubt, 
calls and like, blah, 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 I've seen this or I suspect that. What are my choices or what are my... Uh, yeah, safe you know, place. What, what can I do? Or is that, should I pursue that to the higher authorities or should I let that go? I mean, a safe place where you're not worried that if you speak up, you're going to lose your job exactly. because everyone is connected in this tiny cycling world. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's so true. And for the coaches, like one of the, like I, I heard you in other interviews talking about coaches and like the relationship and, we don't need to go into that. Like the, it is a complex relationship that a coach has with an athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's David, my husband, he's a coach and I find it interesting because, and I love that he does that when he, when a young athlete message him to ask if he can coach, he talks with them. And when he's finished a conversation, he always say, you know what? I'm asking you, go see three or four other coaches. Go speak with other people. And I want you to know what else is out there and go with the person that you feel the most comfortable with. Yep. And I think there's a tendency maybe in coaching sometimes to talk about my athletes or have like take possession over our, our their athletes maybe. And I think that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, it shouldn't be a position of power. It's a position of we're working together to get to a certain goal. And to a certain extent, like the athlete is hiring the coach. So one could see it as like the athlete is the boss and it's my goal. And I hire you to help me get there. Not necessarily the other way around. I don't know what you think. About I, that. I 100% agree. I think we see it a bit more in tennis. In tennis, oh, they're gonna, they're yeah. gonna, they're gonna hire their coach, and if it yeah. doesn't work, they fire him and they find someone else. Yeah, true. In cycling, we stand by. Now I, I mean, I've been out for a long time, and now I'm just coming back. But we have the tendency to stick with the same person, and it's more of an appropriation. Maybe it's because it's an older sport, and it was done the way like that for a long time. But yes, it should be the athletes in charge of their process. And yes, you need a coach that's going to tell you the truth. And you need a coach that's going to push you. And mm -hmm. sometimes you're not going to want to do that training. But you need, you need to do it because in your plan, you know, like I do, yeah. like if you're supposed to do your intervals on Friday because your race is that day, they need to be done on Friday because that's how you're going to peak the best. Yep. So there's a certain uh, sequence of stuff. So the coach needs to be motivating and strict enough, yep. but not strict to the point where it's all about him and it's my athletes and you're winning because of me and you're not going to be anybody if I'm not there and blah, blah, blah. The athletes need to be in control of... 99% of mm -hmm. everything else. Yeah. It's really an individual process. Um, but yeah, it's, j'ai oublié ta question. I no, forgot no, the, I the, mean, the I first think, question. No, no that, that was I it. agree 100%. That was it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, is there, I would like to get, take a few minutes to get to know Geneviève, get to know, I mean, what races I'm going to see you at, all of that. But before that, is there anything else that you would like to share that I didn't touch on? Um, I think we touched on a lot of stuff. Well, uh, obviously, I mean, don't do drugs, right? <laughs> That's, uh, it's, you're going to get paranoid and it's not good. And it's way better to find your own potential by yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's one. But more, most importantly, at the minute you feel like something is wrong, that you're pushed 
to do something that doesn't line up with your values and you're feeling anxious doing it, it's because something is wrong. I think when we're athletes, we tend not to listen to our inner voice mm -hmm. because we equate that inner voice with the voice that says, my legs are burning, you should slow down, you know, you're not going to be able to follow the, the her attack because, you know, yeah. you're already right here and she doesn't look like she was, she's working hard, so don't go. It's not the same. Okay, yes, that voice that tells you, Magali, you should slow down or you're not able to, you say, fuck you, and you go. But the voice that tells you, this is not something that I feel comfortable doing and something is not right, it's usually true. Mm -hmm. So we really have to make an effort as athletes to uh, dissociate those two and follow one but not follow the other. So I think that's, yeah, that's m the most important thing. If you see something, if you're going through something, don't hesitate to ask for help. There's more and more of those nonprofits and you know mm -hmm. agencies that are there. But even if you don't go there, when it doesn't feel right, it's because it's not right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And one of the most powerful things to me still is that, that you said is still is that what you told me at Big Red, I'll, I'll never get to know. And this yeah. is this is just so hard because that's that's the fun part. And, and it's really hard to hear that. So I think that's already like a powerful message. Like you want to know, you want to be able to finish and know what you were able to do and Honestly, it sometimes equates a win. Like, for example, at the World Championships this weekend, I, whatever, a bad start, whatever. I had, like, big goals. In the end, I finished ninth, but it was such a strong ride. I finished, and I was so happy. And it's like, and then I finished, and I'm like, okay, like, that was great, and I got ninth. Like, now what else? But that's, like, a fun feeling, and I, I, I wish everyone who pursues sports to be able to have that feeling, exact. and I'm so sorry that you didn't. Well, you were deprived from it. Why, so. exact. That's why even at 41, I'm going to try to get to that point where I do a race yes. and I can say at the end of the race, I could not have performed better. Yeah. I want to know that feeling because even if you win, it it's not as good as when you do a race and you fought, mm -hmm. fought, 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 and you finish completely empty and you know I I don't see how it could compare. I would rather be like you like you experienced at the Worlds. And I just want to say that I looked at the race and you're the only North American or I know there's an Italian that came in fourth, but it's all, all uh, Netherlands flag and then there's you. It's like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. C'est là, vraiment. Oh, oh, thank you. Um, And you know, like there's one thing that my one of my teammates told me one, and it's like it was like okay, some people win every race. Like you know, there's some people in this field that are better than me, and I struggled at I struggled for for some time because I was always comparing myself to those people, and I felt like oh, I'm not good enough. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not. And she told me at some point, she said, you know what, like every time you have a podium or every every time you manage to like have your best result or just a race like the world's where it's just such a great good race she said celebrated because first like we don't know what the other ones are doing but you know what you've done and exact. you know how you're doing it and that's something to be proud of and to celebrate so and we're all different like okay maybe i won't win all the races in my life but maybe the ones that i have when everything comes together we can celebrate it and At the end of the day, it's still a good career. Like, 
And I think that's something too, like a message for the young. Like it's okay if you're not always the best. You mm. can still, it still has value. It's an excellent point you're bringing because of course, you know, I follow you on social media and that's what I always see in all the races. Even if, if when you get a shitty one and you had something that you're not happy about, you also have a word on what you did well. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely important. And I'm a bit jealous of that. I'm going to try, of course, like I just said, to replicate that in the career I'm starting now. But it's so important. I mean, for me, if I, would ha if I, if I had the chance to do my career again, I would rather have a life like you're living now. You're involved in a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, you do, you have fun, you do your races, but you're, you always have something to celebrate. It's so much more rewarding than always being told or telling yourself, oh my God, I'm not enough. Oh, I suck. Oh, this and this didn't work. You know, I don't have a place in this world or in the world of cycling or blah, blah, blah. I mean, at some point it gets exhausting. Okay, it exhausting. doesn't do anything good no. for your person. Yeah. And we're not going to be athletes our whole life. We are human beings that are going to do a thousand different things. Yeah. See, so that approach you're having now or that you're working on and all that stuff, it's just so healthier, so much healthier mm. than what I've been through. And I'm not the only one, you know, no, there's no. other people like that. So yeah. it's really refreshing to mm. see. Well, I Super appreciate fun. it. And, and it is a work in progress. You know, it's not something that, that I, I've been rough on myself and, I think it's also okay to be honest with ourselves. Like, yeah, we need to be rough. Yeah, because of sometimes I suck. And yeah. you, when I can say that, it's because I know that I haven't done my best. And you can't fool yourself. Yeah. Like, you can't tell other people, oh, no, that was still my best. But deep down, you know. Yeah. Like, those days, I'm not proud. But acknowledging that I have those days allows me to land. Then when the next race comes, I'm like, okay, like now like bring it on. And then, then I can find what I did well. Mm -mm. Um, so anyway, just wanted to, to say that, that it's not always perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when do I see you at another race? What are your plans this summer? Bay, uh, this summer, I'm going a bit more ultra endurance. I saw that you were doing on, like going on a big trip, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to do Badlands at the end of, uh, at the beginning of September. So okay. at the end of the summer, that's a 800 kilometers so 500 miles for US friends uh, with uh, 16,000 meters of elevation and it's all gravel okay where it Badlands, it's, Badlands is southeast of Spain okay. it starts wow. in Granada very cool. so I I'm gonna try my hand at that and I have a few announcements for that race in the works a few surprises Um, I'm going to also be part of the Grand Défi Pierre Lavoie okay. in an all-women uh, super encadreur team. Okay. So it's going to be, so far, uh, a, I think a great experience and, you know, being able to help people and do that thousand kilometers and being able to ride at night because I've never ridden at night and I need to practice for Badlands. So I was really, really uh, grateful when Pierre called me and asked me. Um, and then I have a few other projects, but it's going to be mostly for endurance because of, like I said at the beginning, I'm going more for the experiences. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it's like that for everybody, but I guess when you get older, you get a bit more prudent or I'm, I'm getting freaked out by the speed sometimes. Yeah. And taking the corners at high speed and stuff. And when I was in my 20s, I had no problem. But now I think about, you know, I'm a personal coach. Uh, I coach Orange Theory classes. I have a job. I, 
I am actually using my body to work. Yeah, yeah. If you crash, you can't so get to I work can, on Monday. I can't see. So I have this, this side of my life and I love to be active. Uh, I'm not going to make a living with cycling. Uh, so I have to keep everything in perspective. So that's why I'm choosing to go more longer. Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm hoping to do again uh, Buckland, yep, Big Red. That's amazing. Uh, I'll I'll try my hand at Rasputitsa. Oh, that's a fun one. Hey, I like hate it. to be cold and I hate to be wet, so <laughs> I'm already <Good> praying <laughs> for good weather. Yeah. So I'll stay closer. I think this year I, I didn't take any trade teams or anything because I want to be involved in uh, in safe sport and I have a lot of opportunities. Yeah. So I didn't feel comfortable of saying yes to a team. And then not being able to, to, go, to, to go to the races or to go to the races and then feeling like I have not something to prove because last year, Floyd of Leadville were amazing. They just wanted me to have fun and I did. I had a lot of fun. Uh, but still, I'm I'm professional in my yeah. approach. And if I can't go to a race and at least give my best or, you know, I, I don't want to do that. So I'll stay more local. Yeah, that's fun. But um Why it's uh, I want to keep going at that process of really finding my own motivation and voice in cycling. Yeah, and and you know, there's one thing that I, I really, it looks like you're already experiencing it, but something that's really fun with the gravel and all that, all these events that you're going to is the is the community. And I know you were that's another thing you were deprived from when you were when you were younger. And I hope that you get to experience that and. Um, Like, yeah, I mean, I would love to go ride with you. And, and it's something that's so special. And I, I really, I'm excited for you to experience that in a, in a more fresh way uh, this time. So yeah, yeah I, that will be fun. I think the, the gravel community is, I mean, I've never experienced mountain bike or cyclocross. Uh, cyclocross with the fans, it's amazing. But it gives me that camaraderie or that friendship or that fun that I, I miss. Yeah. And I'm not sure I would find it again in road racing. Because it seems even now that it's a bit more serious, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's totally fine. Uh, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. I'm uh, I'm gonna be curious to know that all uh, that whole uh, ultra endurance. Uh, that's another level of crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> I have a friend that does that. It's crazy. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, as we finish this uh, this discussion, we're we're still on a spin. Remember, we went we went on this ride. Mm -hmm. um, Let's say we finished the ride. I know you love good food. I think you love, like you had a restaurant. Uh, sometimes you post on Instagram that you go to like good restaurants and stuff. Where do we go? What's the ideal lunch with Geneviève? What Ooh. do you love to, what do you, what do you love to, it doesn't need to, have to be a place, but what do you love to eat? Well, it's definitely going to be a lunch with adult beverages. I, beer or wine? Wine. Wine. Okay. Beer is fine, but just after a bike race, I am not a fan. But I love all the wines, mostly whites. I love reds too, but I'm I tend toward the whites because they're cold and and they, they just fit better with the food I I, uh, I choose to eat. Uh, I'm vegetarian. It's been uh, since 2005. So it would probably involve a bunch of grilled vegetables. I love crunchy stuff. I love stuff. Vegetables, vegetables. The protein would be, would be probably fish uh, or tofu or grains and stuff. But I, I have a penchant for, for a good fish. 
salmon or cod or yep. any any of, uh, of them, but it needs to be a meal with a lot of textures. Okay. Nothing too soft. Like, I'm not a mashed potato person. I'm more of a crunchy person. I need to feel the textures feel in my mouth. Okay. So, I'm al in. alcohol, <laughs> a lot of vegetables... A good little protein, something like lights and carbs. Uh, I love like really good sourdough bread. Oh, me too. Okay. Well, I know. I mean, for a six hour ride, it, you won't survive on just sourdough, but uh, sourdough good. and olive oil. Uh, oh, mm, so okay. that would be it. I, I'm in. Let's make this okay, happen. Awesome. Okay. And last, uh, last questions about, about coffee. I love that. First, do you sometimes, do you like coffee rides? Do you stop for coffee sometimes on rides? Well, I, I mean, I know you're a busy would. person. No, but. I would if there would be coffee shops in my area. Yeah. Um, but I usually, I'm a one coffee person. It's in the morning. I like an Italian or a French roast. We have a rocket espresso machine at home. Yeah. And my husband is extremely good barista. So he makes my coffee every morning with almond milk. Uh, but yes, and now since I'm working a lot and I do my intervals after noon, which for me is super late <laughs> yeah. because I always had the luxury of choosing when I ride and it's usually in the morning. So now it's in the afternoon. Well, so I'm going to have a shot of coffee before I start. Okay. And that helps me with, you know, my my energy and going through the, the session. You know what I love is that when I asked you... Um, We're bringing coffee. We're having coffee. What do you like? And you, you were. I, I just asked if you like coffee, and your response was like, "Yes, but I like, I like Italian roast, darker roast." It was like a really precise, and I loved it. it was like I love a woman that knows what she wants. Um, so I mean, thank you to Le Club Espresso Ball. One day we'll have to go there, ride together, and stop there. I think it, it's a place for cyclists. They always have like a bunch of cyclists there. I went there this morning and they also had pastries. I don't know if you're a pastry kind of person. In, a, in a big ride. In a big ride. I'm the because same. Because I'm going to burp them. Yeah, I, I'm the yeah. same. It needs to be a long, easy ride. So then you feel good. So maybe one day we, uh, I mean, we have a lot of things. We, we're going to have this ride in close to my hometown where we work on gravel yeah, and techniques. And, skills. and we finish with barbecue and veggies and wine. Yes. Um, then we have your big ride. My big ride in my area. In Alexandria. On and then, roads, yep. and then we need to do a coffee ride to uh, to Le Club Espresso Ball together one okay. day. Okay, so three dates for the 2023 season. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yes, yeah, definitely. Cool. I mean, thank you so much, uh, Geneviève. I want to take a second to say I how much I admire admire how strong of a woman you are, how generous you are, and how courageous you are for sharing all of your uh, all of your story. I think it's very inspiring. I think it's. I know it must take so much courage, even coming back into the cycling community. I, it must take so much courage and it's very empowering to see you go. Um, and with all the experiences you have, I can't imagine how strong you must be. And, and it shows, you know, but I just want to say like, Thank you and congratulations. It's, my, it's cool to watch. Thank you. you, my God. I'm all embarrassed. You're going to make me go all red. <laughs> <laughs> But you're welcome. Um, if, uh, if, I can, if I can help or with my story, well, I'm happy I can. So hopefully yeah. it's, uh, someone's going to listen to that and say, okay, I know. And now I, I'm going to try to change something in my life. That would be good. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.